Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. What kind of a show are you guys putting on here today? You're not interested in art? No. Now look, we're going to do this thing. We're going to have a conversation. From Chicago, this is Film Spotting. I'm Adam Kempinar. And I'm Josh Larson. I'd like us to make a deal. There's things I'd like to do while you play. If you let me, you can earn it back. What do you think? One visit for every key. That's Harvey Keitel in Jane Campion's celebrated third feature, The Piano. A winner of three Oscars, the 1993 film was also a surprise box office success and established Campion as one of the most distinctive directors of her generation. This week, we revisit The Piano as part of our Campion Oeuvre review, and we've got a preview of the Chicago International Film Festival, which opens on the 13th. Playing that fest? Campion's latest, The Power of the Dog. That and more. Adam, I'll give you a piano key for every star you give to the piano. Might be a short tune. Ahead on Film Spotting. (laughs) Welcome to Film Spotting. 28 years ago this month, Josh, Jane Campion's The Piano came to Chicago as part of the Chicago International Film Festival. By that time, Campion's film had already won the top prize at Cannes, and it would go on to be one of the most acclaimed films of the year. This year, Campion's new one, her first feature in 12 years, is also playing our hometown film festival. It's The Power of the Dog, starring Benedict Cumberbatch and Kirsten Dunst. And it might just be Campion's most celebrated film since The Piano. Yeah, according to Sam, producer, he's uh, looked up the score so far at Metacritic, and I guess it's got a 90, which means universal acclaim, so not bad. Yeah, and it bypassed Cannes, and it debuted instead at the Venice Film Festival in September. Campion won the Best Director Prize for The Power of the Dog, which we will get to closer to its theatrical release in November here on the show. We will talk the piano this week, later in the show, as part of our Campion Oeuvre Review. Now, Adam, you've got me nervous. Your little joke at the top there. I'm trying Uh to read your face if you were just doing a bit or um, Mm. I guess we'll see. I guess we'll see. Imagine me a little less expressive than Holly Hunter in the piano. I'll I'll go for that. I'm going to be stoic. Okay. I'm not going to betray anything. I'm going to build up the suspense, Josh. And speaking of suspense, let's go ahead and try to build some. Let's look ahead to the movies that we are most anticipating at this year's Chicago International Film Festival. A lot of these movies are playing in person. 
but you can also purchase virtual tickets for our listeners who are listening from all around the world. It's the 57th annual edition of the fest. It starts on Wednesday, October 13th with a double feature at our beloved Music Box Theater where we've done at least a couple big film spotting shows, live events, and they've got Wes Anderson's The French Dispatch, which I know we both cannot wait for, and David Gordon Green's Halloween Kills, a sequel to his 2018 reboot of the John Carpenter classic, also playing opening night. This is at a drive-in in in Chicago's Pilsen neighborhood, Todd Haynes' dock, The Velvet Underground, and that drive-in, I believe, is the one that friend of the show, AV Club writer Katie Reif is a programmer for, so lots of great screenings to check out as part of this fest. We're going to get to our combined top five most anticipated titles playing the fest in just a bit. First, though, we want to highlight a few of the bigger screenings that are taking place in advance of the wide release of these titles. We did just mention Wes Anderson's The French Dispatch. That's going to be in theaters October 22. Campion's The Power of the Dog comes out in November. Ridley Scott's The Last Duel. It has a screening next Thursday on the eve of its nationwide release. And the Chicago Festival is also going to give Dune its Chicago debut on the 18th. That'll be ahead of its release on the 22nd. One more title worth mentioning here, a bigger one, is King Richard, which stars Will Smith in a biopic about the father of Venus and Serena Williams. That's going to play the final day of the fest, the 24th, before opening wide later in November. So those are all probably movies you've heard of, but let's talk about some that we're anticipating, Adam, that are maybe a little bit lower on the radar. Well, before I get to those and we jump into our joint top five list, I'm just going to throw out a few more titles that you didn't mention, and these aren't quite as high profile as the ones you listed, but still have been getting some acclaim or at least some attention, maybe even here on this show. Spencer, Pablo Lorraine's Princess Die movie starring Kristen Stewart, also playing the festival. You had a question during our fall movie preview about the new Western starring Idris Elba and Jonathan Majors. I think it's eventually going to come to Netflix, The Harder They Fall, also playing the festival, and a movie that I had a question about, Bergman Island, the latest from Mia Hansen Love is also available. This lineup is so good, and our list is so good. Here are some of the internationally renowned filmmakers that are only getting an honorable mention here. How about Pedro Almodovar Mm -hmm. with a new film? Parallel Mothers, of course, with Penelope Cruz. Hong Sang-soo, In Front of Your Face. Asghar Farhadi has a hero playing the fest. And Yeah, I've got a few more honorable mentions, but let's go ahead and get to our top five. As I said, a joint list. You're going to start us off. Well, as you know, Adam, I am partial to, let's call it the immersive transcendental animal genre. Mm. Uh, These are movies that are a little bit experimental, usually documentaries that offer unique perspectives and understandings of the animal world. Think of Think of the fish and seagulls. I know you love to do this, Adam. In 2013's Leviathan, it wasn't just about fish heads. There were some live fish there too. Sure. Uh, my favorite film of that year. Last uh-huh. year, we got the Norwegian pig portrait, Gunda. That was a good one. And it looks like you can add Andrea Arnold's cow to this list, which is going to be part of the Chicago Film Festival. Here's the festival synopsis. Shot over four years on an English farm, the film patiently observes Luma, a cow, as she gives birth, pumps milk, and remains protective of her calves around her caretakers. But as the film goes on, cow gradually takes on deeper and darker layers. 
empathically bringing the viewer closer to the bovine experience and humankind's cruel, or is it just practical, dominance over the species. So Andrea Arnold, interesting filmmaker, Adam, gotten a lot of love here on the show. We both really appreciated her adaptation of Wuthering Heights that went on actually to win our Golden Brick Award. Uh, That's the award we give to visionary, unseen early films. I wasn't quite as high on her American honey, but this sounds fascinating. Uh, It's going to be Arnold's first nonfiction film, so we'll see what she does with it. Cow is playing the fest at 6 p.m. on October 19, and this is one of the titles that will be available as a virtual screening for a limited window. It looks like they're limiting that to a few Midwestern states. So there are some restrictions on that. um, But if you do qualify, you could see this virtually as well. Give it, I don't know, 10 or 15 more years, Josh, and we may actually be able to do our top five immersive transcendental animal movies. (laughs) I can't wait. Cannot wait. (laughs) And I will mention, in addition to the other titles you listed from Arnold, her debut, I believe, Red Road, very good, and Fish Tank as well. My pick, our number four movie we're most anticipating at the Chicago International Film Festival, is the latest from Norwegian filmmaker Joachim Trier. And I love how on the Chicago Film Festival website, they give you the tags the genres, if you will, the categories that these movies fit into. And this one includes romance and women-centered. You actually are going to hear a lot of that on this list. There's one more I'll get to in a moment as I read the plot synopsis for The Worst Person in the World. Julie Renata Reinz, winner of the Best Actress Award at Cannes this year, is on the precipice of 30 and her life is an existential mess, vaguely aware that she has squandered her talents and frustrated living in the shadow of long-term boyfriend Axel, a successful graphic novelist, she resists his entreaties to settle down. One night, she impulsively crashes a party and meets the young and charming Elvind. Will he be the key that unlocks a new perspective on life? Smart, vibrant, and perceptive, Joachim Trier's final entry in his Oslo trilogy upends the traditional romantic comedy with this anthem to restlessness, indecision, and ultimately hope. So immediately, although I'm not familiar with the work at all of Renata Reinz, and I apologize if I am butchering that last name, she did, as I mentioned, win the Best Actress Award at Cannes this year. So want to see what the jury members were so impressed with. Also, final entry in his Oslo trilogy. So the first two movies were Trier's feature debut reprise, and later Oslo, August 31st. I really like Reprise, which was his breakout film, but I liked even more Oslo, August 31st, which I had as my number seven film of 2012. We had it as a Golden Brick nominee that year. And in 2015, he released Louder Than Bombs, which was his first English-speaking movie. Michael Sarah, Gabriel Byrne, Isabel Huppert are in that movie, and I liked it as well, though I still think Oslo is his high point, I realized looking at his IMDb, Josh, that I completely missed the boat on 2017's Thelma. I don't know if that rings a bell. If it doesn't, maybe this plot description does. A confused religious girl tries to deny her feelings for a female friend who's in love with her. This causes her suppressed, subconsciously controlled psychokinetic powers to reemerge with devastating results. Having seen those three other films, I never would have necessarily associated a movie about someone with psychokinetic powers being attributed 
to Joachim Trier. But again, I go back to those first two movies and then this one, the worst person in the world that he sees as connected in some way. And then maybe the most intriguing part is the line about it upending the traditional romantic comedy. Comedy is the other category this film falls into. And again, if you've seen any of these other films, there is no part of them that would ever be described as comedic. There is barely, as I recall it, any humor at all. These are very dramatic, very heavy films dealing with very serious subject matter. Oslo, August 31st is 24 hours in the life of a man who's just been released from a rehab facility and struggling with all that entails. And yet, the last word of this synopsis is hope. And that's what impressed me so much about Oslo was Trier's ability to deal with this really bleak subject matter and characters just seemingly stuck in an endless cycle that seems futile to break. And yet there never is really any cynicism to his filmmaking. And if that's all not enough, we did get an email from a listener named Zach Stetson who says, I highly recommend The Worst Person in the World at the Chicago Film Fest. Amazing film. There you have it. All right. Yeah, the irony is Thelma is the one that plot-wise probably sounds most up my alley, and it's I haven't seen it. I've seen Reprise mm-hmm. and Oslo as well. Yeah, don't recall a lot of laughs in those. If anything, it was maybe some of that Nordic dry humor that we experienced during our mm-hmm. marathon a couple of years ago. But yeah, this is this is one that should definitely be on people's radars as well. My pick at number three is Passing. Now, I did that thing that annoys you, Adam. I read the Nella Larson novel, novella, actually, on which this is based. I think it was it was probably last year that I did that. It was it was absolutely fantastic, but maybe it's good that so much time has passed because I'm I'm not gonna get caught up in making too many comparisons here when I do see the film. The story is set in the 1920s and focuses on two childhood friends who unexpectedly run into each other as adults. Realizing they both can and occasionally do, uh, for one of the women, this is her entire life, passing as white. They're reunited, and this new adult friendship, it becomes complicated in all sorts of ways. The cast here, unreal. Ruth Nega and Tessa Thompson in the leads, with Andre Holland and Alexander Skarsgård in supporting parts. Also, this is actor Rebecca Hall making her writing, directing debut. By all accounts, proving herself more than capable, strong word of mouth on passing so far. Now for the Chicago Film Festival screening, Hall is going to be on hand. That is 7.30 p.m. October 20, so very likely to sell out if it hasn't already by the time listeners see this. I know tickets were available today when I checked, but that might no longer be the case. Either way, passing should be on your radar, especially if you're planning to attend the fest. Pardon me, I don't mean to stare, but I think I know you. Claire? Mm-hmm. I'm trying to find out the history of the blonde you've brought along. She's a girl from Chicago I used to know. Princess from Chicago. Things aren't always what they seem. Bobby Dan. Yeah, the story alone sounds fascinating. Add in Rebecca Hall making her directorial debut, as you said, and then Ruth Nega and Tessa Thompson. Really excited to see passing. Our number two most anticipated movie of the Chicago International Film Festival is Memoria, which is directed by 
Josh, I will let you do the honors as I always do. Even though by now I've heard you say it so many times, I think I got it. I still like to hear you say it. Let's go with a picha pong rastakun. I think that's well, correct. Well done. Categories here, again, women-centered. Also, not surprisingly, if you're familiar at all with his work, and when I say his I'll probably refer to him as Joe the rest of the time I talk about this movie as he is affectionately and commonly known. Here's the plot description in a fascinating collaboration, and I'm going to leave out a key part here and come back to it. Collaboration between the acclaimed filmmaker and star blank. We follow a Scotswoman living in Bogota who is disturbed one night by a loud, mysterious sound outside of her apartment, which no one else seems to hear. Haunted by the noise that follows her through the city, she seeks out a young sound engineer to identify the origins of the confounding sonic disturbance. Their search takes them to the interior of the lush Colombian jungle, where past, present, and future blur. Rendered with beguiling beauty, Memoria explores the sublime space between reality, myth, history, and memory in this mesmerizing sensory meditation on isolation and alienation in the modern world. So maybe that all sounds brilliant and you can't wait. Maybe it all sounds a little too weird and intense. Here's the fascinating collaborator whose name I left out. It's Joe working with Tilda Swinton. And, and that's all you really need to know to want to see any movie that is playing anywhere if she is starring in it. Also, this is a movie that was the co-winner of the jury prize at this year's Cannes Film Festival. You know me, Josh. You know why this movie stands out. Past, present, and future blur explores the sublime space between reality, myth, history, and memory. Just throw in something about the art and the artist or making films, and you know it would be my most anticipated movie of the next five years, probably. And here's the other thing about this film and this filmmaker. I just need to see more Joe. I think I have only seen Uncle Boon Me, Confession. That's the only one I've seen. And as beguiling and mesmerizing as it was to borrow some terms from whoever wrote that blurb for the Chicago Film Festival, there was still a part of me that was simply trying to understand and identify what it was I was consuming. I don't know if Memoria is going to be any more straightforward, and some of those other titles that people really know Joe for that I haven't seen, Cemetery of Splendor, Tropical Malady, Syndromes in a Century. I hate to have another one, especially one that sounds this compelling, slip by me. And I'll throw in one more reason to see this film, besides the fact that it's the kind of movie you should see at a film festival. Back when I was more regularly visiting Fess, I would occasionally be guilty of the same thing a lot of critics are, which is I would go to the movie that I knew was coming out in a month or maybe even a few weeks that I'd have no problem seeing at the multiplex just because I was so eager to see it when I should have been going to some of these more off-the-beaten-path titles? Well, if you see it here, maybe you're going to be part of an event. You're going to see it with an audience, and it will be a singular thing. And I suppose you could say that about any film festival screening. It's not like they're going to repeat it. But what I'm getting at, Josh, is just earlier today, I saw over on the AV Club that Neon, who's distributing this film, plans to do a never-ending theatrical tour. They've got an experiment going with this experimental film. Basically, the feature is going to travel from city to city, theater to theater, indefinitely. 
Here's a line from the article. After making the decision that showing Memoria in multiple theaters simultaneously would detract from the experience, the film will release with a deliberate and methodical approach. Neon says, moving from city to city, theater to theater, week by week, playing in front of only one solitary audience at any given time. The hope is Memoria will continuously live on as a kind of never-ending moving image art exhibit. Now, I want to be part of that. And if it's going to happen indefinitely, maybe you're thinking, well, then why do I need to see it here at the Chicago International Film Festival? Well, we don't know what Neon's plans exactly are. Maybe it will hit Chicago Maybe it won't, or maybe it just won't happen for a long time. And even when it does, you know it's still only going to be a one-night-only affair. So take advantage of it when you can. See this movie in the theater. Have an experience with Memoria. And this is why this is the title that I'm prioritizing to try to actually get to at the fest. Neither of us often get to attend in person that many screenings um, when the fest takes place each year. But I try to at least choose one that I get to, and I've, I've put in the request already for this. We'll see we'll see what happens. Um, but yeah, really interesting strategy they have for this movie, and I definitely want to catch it if I can. And you're right about uh, this being a filmmaker, you know, especially so immersed in a culture unfamiliar with ours, with what you and I are used to at least, you do need to see his movies definitely more than once to kind of, you know, after you get your bearings to then just get a bit of a firmer grasp on what he might be doing thematically and be able to keep up with the amazing visuals that are just as tricky. Um, it, it took me, I think, maybe three viewings. Um, actually, you know, Cemetery of Splendor made when we did our top 20 films of the 2010s. That was on my list. Um, and that was only after a couple of viewings when I could fully appreciate it. So, so yeah, so glad you put Memoria on uh, this list, Adam, because it's definitely one of my most anticipated as well. Uh, and that brings us to number one, which we share. Um, speaking of thinking alike, this is Petite Mama. This is Celine Sciamma's Portrait of a Lady on Fire follow-up. Uh, Portrait of a Lady on Fire, that was my second favorite film of 2019. I found that movie, Adam, kind of devastating, even though it wasn't close to any sort of personal experience I could relate to. And now we have Petite Maman, which seems to be a little bit closer to home. So I'm a little worried about how I might respond. Um, here's the plot synopsis. Eight-year-old Nellie travels with her parents to her mother's childhood home following the death of her grandmother. As her parents spend their days cleaning out the house, Nellie wanders the surrounding woods searching for the fort her mother constructed as a child. To her surprise, she encounters a girl her own age who is building a fort, and the two become fast friends. So mother's, grandmother's, childhood, all really tender stuff, I imagine especially so in Skiyama's hands. Um, now, Petite Mama has two screenings as part of the festival, 8.45 p.m. October 15, 5.30 p.m. October 20, and it will be one of those virtual screening options as well. Uh, but yeah, what are you what are you kind of most anticipating about this title, Adam? Well, you said it when you mentioned her previous film. I mean, Portrait of a Lady on Fire. Anybody who makes that film, I can't wait to see what you're going to make next. Doesn't matter what it's called. Doesn't matter what it's about. I kind of wish... I didn't even know what I think I know about this film, what I've picked up from various plot summaries or picked up on Twitter as the just rapturous reaction to it has come out of some of these film festivals. And that really is the other big reason, Josh. So many people 
we both follow and trust who have seen this film all seem to regard it so highly. Mariah Gates, who's been on our show and who regularly appears during our monthly trivia spotting events, she saw it in Toronto, I believe, and said it was just a beautiful film about mothers and daughters. Don't read too much about it before going in. And remember, Skiyama never misses. Now, here's the thing. Mariah saw just in the month of September. This is the thing that's always, among many things that impresses me about Mariah Gates, the thing that has always most blown me away as just how prolific she is when it comes to consuming cinema. In the month of September alone, she saw 67 movies. Josh. <laughs> I'm not even going to try to do the math on that. No, 67 movies. And of those 67, here's the point. Petite Mama was the number one film, her favorite that she saw of all those 67. So if you trust Mariah at all, and you trust what you saw, hopefully on screen when you watch Portrait of a Lady on Fire, you know that this is a must see at the festival. Oh, here's another small case to be made for it, Petit also describes its runtime, Josh. After the 138 minutes or so of Joe's latest, you can go to Petit Mama and sit there for all of 72 minutes. Yeah, the, those short runtimes never really seem to hurt a movie, do they? They don't. I mean, that sounds good to yeah. me. Skiyama, automatically now my favorite filmmaker. <laughs> That's all it takes, huh? Yep. Those are our top five most anticipated Chicago International Film Fest titles. We will list all of these titles in our show notes over at filmspotting.net. Actually, just go to our top five page, click on lists at the top of filmspotting.net. And of course, we will link in our show notes to all the titles that are playing the fest where you can get more information about how and where and when to see them. We've mentioned a lot of titles. I still have more to mention, Josh, in the honorable mention category. Do you have any others you want to sneak in? Yeah, just a couple. You mentioned this one at the top, Parallel Mothers, the new Elmadovar. Uh, I don't know if this hasn't been playing as many fests or what, but haven't heard quite as much about this. Uh, it is, it looks like still going to get an end of year theatrical release of some sort. And yeah, you said it. I mean, I don't care if it was getting terrible reviews. It's Elmodovar and stars Penelope Cruz. I'm still going to anticipate it and make my own decision. The only other one I might highlight uh, quickly here is a documentary about Julia Child, the legendary cookbook author and uh, television chef is how I got to know her. Usually these sort of celebrity portrait documentaries, I'm only really that interested if I have some sort of connection with the subject mm -hmm. and this Julia Child was, I don't know if it was PBS. I want to say it was Saturday afternoons in Chicago, um, was part of, it might've even been part of the very early Siskel and Ebert show, part of that like Saturday night afternoon block of programming that was a ritual for us as a family. And I had, I'm sure as a little kid, barely even thought about, you know, cooking beyond what my mm -hmm. mom would make in the rush between, you know, school getting out and whatever we had to do that night. Uh, and this was a show that uh, was just kind of enchanting the way this woman would take you with the, the, just like the effervescence I remember that she would have. She was so excited about cooking that it was maybe the first time I thought of it that way. So this is a documentary on Julia Child. The directors are Julie Cohen and Betsy West. Really don't know that much 
more about it. But if you, like me, um, remember her from your youth, this might be something you're interested in checking out. Well, that just truly makes me feel uncultured, Josh. You know, growing up in Iowa, Julia Child, never on my radar. I think I only knew her by name and kind of reputation, but couldn't have actually ever identified her or really known what she was famous for beyond being this this chef and this writer. I had no visibility into the life of Julia Child. I think probably until I saw the movie Julie and Julia. If so only Adam, if I'll only discover she'd been, all of it. If she'd have been on HBO, you would have been all set. Exactly. One of my picks here is a nice tie-in with Julia. It's Love Charlie, The Rise and Fall of Chef Charlie Trotter, a documentary directed by Rebecca Halpern. And if you look at the plot summary, they mention that Trotter was a culinary bad boy and he paved the way for Anthony Bourdain and Gordon Ramsay. And he died from a stroke in 2013. He was only 54. I, again, not being from Chicago originally, this restaurant, Charlie Trotter's, was never on my radar. Didn't know anything about him. This is before the the golden age here of these celebrity chefs. But I remember reading somewhere, I'm pretty sure it was Stephen King saying something like, I'll have to Google and see if I can find this. This was ages ago. But saying something like the ideal birthday for me or the thing I do on all of my birthdays is my wife and I, we go to Chicago and we eat at Charlie Trotter's. It was something like that where he made it seem like it was just one of those life experiences you just you just had to have. So I've been curious about the chef ever since, though never did have a chance to eat there. Definitely want to see Love Charlie. There's another documentary playing that I'm curious about called Mayor Pete which is, yes, about Mayor Pete Buttigieg and his run for the presidency. It's directed by Jesse Moss, who co-directed The Very Good Boys State a couple years ago. The Beta Test is another one from Jim Cummings, who we've talked about a fair amount here on the show, Thunder Road, and his last film that I believe was called The Wolf of Snow Hollow, yep. which I thought was was very interesting and very fun. His his take on kind of a horror comedy. And in this one, which he co-directed with PJ McCabe, I think he plays the main character, a hotshot Hollywood talent agent who becomes ensnared in a web of conspiracy, paranoia, and guilt that threatens to upend both his career and his personal life. Whatever Jim Cummings makes, I'm definitely going to be interested in seeing. And finally... I can't leave this one out. Having been to Belfast, Northern Ireland in my life once, Josh, I think I was there for all of about 12 hours. And the occasion that brought me there was seeing the world premiere of the latest film from Belfast's own Kenneth Branagh, in which I did get to meet him afterwards and get his autograph. Then, of course, I... Can't wait to see Belfast, directed by Kenneth Branagh, this autobiographical, I think not even semi, pretty much autobiographical coming of age story set in 1960s Northern Ireland. Judy Dench in the cast, along with Jamie Dornan, Kieran Hines also among the cast. And Branagh has always been a favorite of mine, even if he's directing Thor movies that I don't really care for, Josh I do want to see Belfast. Come on, no need to knock Thor. Good M- good MCU installment. All right, you mentioned at the top, Adam, Halloween Kills being part of the fest. 
I gave a mea culpa review of the 1978 original Halloween back when we did a sacred cow on it in 2018. It is, it is indeed a horror landmark, all right? Will Adam have a similar change of heart with Jane Campion's The Piano? Our Overview review is next, along with Massacre Theater. Stay with us. from the trailer for No Time to Die, which opens this weekend. We will have a review of Daniel Craig's Farewell to Bond on next week's show. Will this mean, Josh, that all of the Bond anticipation, all of the Bond talk here recently on the show will finally die, at least for a few years, once we take this in, share our thoughts next week? Yeah, I mean, I imagine there'll be a lull until they get the new Bond in place and start making new ones. It just makes me think, you know, we're going to have no idea five, ten years from now of when these movies came out. When we try to think back in this, like whatever it ends up being, two, three year phase. And usually like a movie's release date kind of sticks in your mind if you were around to see it and review it. And this this will just be this blur. But Bond is here. We are prepared. I think we can say that we're well prepared and excited to talk about it. I mean, I just looked this up, so it has to be true. It was originally scheduled for release in November 2019. It's been a full two years No Time to Die has been pushed back. Yeah. And I wonder why that original delay, what that would have been, right? Because that was still the before times. The before times. Indeed. We will will have to do some more Googling. We'll do that offline, as they say. Also next week, our Jane Campion review continues with her follow-up to the piano. 1996's The Portrait of a Lady, an adaptation of the Henry James novel. This one, a stacked cast. Nicole Kidman and John Malkovich, Barbara Hershey, Shelley Duvall, Christian Bale, Mary Louise Parker, Shelley Winters, and John Gilgood. Also, a couple more here. Richard E. Grant, Viggo Mortensen, and Martin Donovan. That does seem insane. I had forgotten that most of those people were even in this movie. Is this is this one a blind spot for you, Adam? Yeah, and the most curious thing is I, too, was among the cast, but I've never seen it. <laughs> Wow. You you never, you were so satisfied with your work. Exactly. You didn't need to see it on screen. Okay. That's right. All right. Next week, we're also going to have results from the current film spotting poll. We asked, what is really Scott's third best film? Scott has two new movies coming to theaters this fall. The Last Duel, which, as we mentioned, will be at the Chicago International Film Festival and also House of Gucci. So after Alien, after Blade Runner, what is his next best picture? Is it Gladiator, which won Best Picture, The Martian, Thelma and Louise, Prometheus, or possibly other? The results so far show Gladiator and Thelma and Louise in kind of a shootout for first. And lest we thought that this wouldn't be another deeply flawed film spotting poll question, other is not in last place. So we surely overlook something obvious that should have been included 
among the candidates, Josh? You can't win them all or or very, any? very many of them. <laughs> Speaking of winners, great segue. We've got a giveaway opportunity. Five Blu-ray copies of F9. I'm going to read this plot description. In my head, I hear it all being said like Vin Diesel, but I'm not capable of replicating that. (laughs) No matter how fast you are, no one outruns their past. Vin Diesel returns for the ninth chapter, not the last, Josh, just the ninth of the worldwide blockbuster series, also starring John Cena. You can own F9 The Fast Saga with the never-before-seen director's cut and all-new bonus content on 4K, UHD, and Blu-ray and digital. It's available now, but you don't have to purchase it because you're a film spotting listener, and you may have a chance at randomly winning it. All you have to do is send us an email, feedback at filmspotting.net. The subject line is F9. And then I can't believe this is what Sam went with. Of all the things that we could pose to our listeners to make them do, in order to win something related to the Fast and the Furious. Sam's most curious to know what your favorite non-Fast and Furious Vin Diesel performance is. <laughs> what, what did you want? Like his his best Fast and Furious line? Did, did you yeah, want audio submissions reading, of, of or, Groot impressions? Yeah, I mean, yes, yes. Okay. Or, or just like best brooding face, anything. Just one moment from... All nine of those films, pick your favorite. Instead, we're going way off the beaten path. I don't know that I can even name a non-F movie oh, for come Vin on. Diesel at this point. What about... Triple X his, or his something? Vo- yeah, yeah, he did do Triple X. What about his vocal performance in The Iron Giant? I oh, mean, that's yeah. okay. in contention. You're uh, right. Or Pitch Black. He was really good in Pitch Black, I will say. I, I will take your word for that. Okay. <laughs> those are my votes at any rate. All right. Well, you have a lot of options. We want to know what your favorite non-Fast and Furious Vin Diesel performance is. We will pick five winners at random and announce them on next week's show. Again, F9, The Fast Saga, is available now on 4K, UHD, and Blu-ray, and digital. I wanted to give another quick plug for the TC Movie Club, which is what I'm doing over at the day job, thinkchristian.net. I talked earlier about this Coen Brothers series that we're doing, which I know will be of interest to many film spotting listeners, basically looking at four Coen Brothers films and placing them on, placing them within this framework of Old Testament, New Testament, throwing some theology at these beloved movies. I'm making video essays for these, Adam. I've been having a blast doing this and just finished up the one for Fargo, which is going to be the first film we're discussing. So folks who join the club, get the video essay, and then we're going to get together virtually on Friday, October 22 at 7.30 p.m. Central. Basically just throwing it open, Q&A, open discussion, what people think about my theories, what theories they have, what we think about the movie in general. I cannot wait to do this. Uh, If you haven't joined yet and it sounds interesting, there's plenty of time, and you can do that at thinkchristian.net slash movie club. Another plug for people close to us, Josh. This week on our sister podcast, The Next Picture Show, they've got part two of their Bet Your Life pairing. It's Paul Schrader's The Card Counter and PTA's Hard Eight. Yes, gambling, redemption, surrogate dads, so perfect. And then next week, you can hear their new pairing. This is a really good one, too. The Many Saints of Newark and The Godfather Part Two. So the origin stories of The Sopranos and The Godfather. This is going to be so lame of me to say, but I'll say it because I have nothing more to offer at this moment. I did watch The Many Saints of Newark over the weekend, Josh, and 
It's no Godfather Part Two. Okay, so yes, that's obvious, but I'm reading mm. between the lines. It's especially obvious when there's maybe only one other movie ever that is close to The Godfather 2, and that's The Godfather 1. Okay, well, uh, I'm also guessing we're not going to get a full Many Saints review anytime no, soon. But, no, okay. but what? here's what I'll say. What I have gathered online, and I, I have not read any other reviews, it's just the tweets that I see, the comments and complaints about just trying to jam too many things in, that's it in a nutshell. It, it's, okay. it's still interesting if you're someone who was a devotee of The Sopranos, but beyond that, I can't say I recommend The Many Saints of Newark. I can, though, recommend and look forward to hearing the next picture show talk about The Many Saints of Newark and The Godfather Part Two. That show is hosted by Tasha Robinson, Keith Phipps, Scott Tobias, and Genevieve Kosky. They post new episodes every Tuesday wherever you get your podcasts. More info at nextpictureshow.net. One way you can support our show is to join the Film Spotting family over on Patreon. For just $5 a month, you get ad-free episodes via a dedicated RSS feed, early show downloads, live pre-sales and discounts, a merch discount, and monthly bonus episodes. Speaking of James Bond, we have been preparing and immersing ourselves in Bond for the last couple of bonus episodes. Our most recent one in September, we did two Bond films. We did 1987's The Living Daylights with Timothy Dalton as Bond and 1995's GoldenEye starring Pierce Brosnan. So that was a two for one. And yeah, always good to remember if you are just joining the Film Spotting family now, on Patreon, you get access to all our past bonus shows. So it's not like you missed out. You can still go ahead and catch up on that in our previous episodes as well, including some other Bond ones. We also offer you the opportunity to participate in our monthly trivia spotting events. As most people are hearing this, the latest trivia spotting will either be just about to occur or already have occurred Friday, October 8th. We are doing Trivia Spotting 15, and a couple of those next picture show hosts, Scott Tobias and Keith Phipps, are going to be among our guest captains. Also, the return of the Chicago Tribune's Michael Phillips. So if you've ever wanted to play trivia for two and a half to three hours with myself, Josh, producer Sam, amazing critics like Scott, Keith, Michael, and more, and, oh, you know, 75 or so really cool, smart film spotting listeners, then you should become a family member and you should participate in trivia spotting. If you did miss October's, that's all right. We got November's already planned Saturday, November 6th. We will give out details on the time here in the coming weeks, but always a good time with our trivia master film spotting listener and family member, Thomas Todd. So if you want all the details on how to get those bonus episodes, how to get those other benefits, including playing trivia spotting, just go to patreon.com slash film spotting. Let's get to Massacre Theater, the part of the show where we perform a scene and you get a chance at winning a film spotting t-shirt. A couple of weeks ago, Adam and I massacred this scene. What is it about the wrong kind of man? In grade school, it was guys with earrings, college, motorcycles, leather jackets. Now, oh, black rubber. Try fireman, lest to take off. I don't mind the work. Pity I can't see behind the mask. We all wear masks. My life's an open book. You read? I don't blend in at a family picnic. 
Oh, we could give it a try. I'll bring the wine. You bring your scarred psyche. That was Nicole Kidman, and I see Sam slipped into the script yeah, here. He's editorializing. Un- unfairly maligned Val Kilmer. No, I-, I think I maligned him quite fairly. I think Adam did as well in his performance. But needless to say, they were both <laughs> in 1995's Batman Forever, written by Lee Batchelor, Janet Scott Batchelor, and Akiva Goldsman, directed by Joel Schumacher. Along with that massacre, we had a 15th anniversary review of Casino Royale. We also talked about the first movie in our Jane Campion series, 1989 Sweetie. So why did we massacre that scene from Batman Forever? Other than, you know, a new actor taking over for an iconic character slash franchise like Kilmer and Craig. Here's Aaron in Glendale, California. It's Batman Forever. I watched this a million times as a kid. What the heck were my parents thinking? (laughs) The scene is Dr. Chase Meridian, played by sultry siren Nicole Kidman, trying to seduce the stoic sentinel Batman, Val Kilmer. What the heck is he thinking? Kidman looks absolutely gorgeous with her Veronica Lake hair and flowing negligee, and Batman just won't give her the time of day. This movie is gonzo. The spotlights, the circus, the soaring score by Elliot Goldenthal. I love everything about it, and I don't care who knows it. (laughs) Well, the the whole world knows it now, Aaron. So, (laughs) all right, here's Mac Johnson from Alexandria, Virginia, who, buckle in, he, he put more work into this than we did into our performances, Adam. I'm in no way ashamed to admit that I recognize this upsettingly horny banter from the opening line, a film that 11 year old me may have briefly considered his favorite of all time. Joel Schumacher's garishly benippled 1995 <laughs> Dark Knight opus, Batman Forever. It may have faded from my letterbox top four by 1996, but it should at least be remembered for asking Academy Award winner Tommy Lee Jones to deliver the line, there's nothing like a bad case of gas while firing a grenade launcher. As far as connections go, I'll point to your recent James Bond reviews. Both the Bond and Batman series had creatively petered out by the end of the 20th century, and both were poised to return in a big way, with Batman Begins and Casino Royale creating the template for the now-cliché gritty reboot. In 2005, it was daring for a major franchise to throw away its firmly established past and start fresh, but they both did and were better for it. 16 years and three, four Spider-Men later, and it's Hollywood's go-to solution whenever they aren't sure what to do next, but can't not make a new Hellboy movie. Thematic and plot-oriented parallels would abound for the next few films. Just watch The Dark Knight and Skyfall back-to-back if you want to see what I mean and have five hours to kill. But if there's one thing that Bruce Wayne and 007 will always agree on, it's the car, right? Chicks love the car. (laughs) Well done, Mac, there in Film Spotting East, Alexandria, Virginia, a regular and very good trivia spotting player. Here's Tom Morris, also putting in some work, Josh, from The Good, The Bad, and The Nerdy Movie podcast, First tie-in has to be that Robert Pattinson, who Adam wants to be the next Bond, is playing Batman in next year's The Batman. Both this movie and that one will feature the Riddler as the villain. Pattinson was in Remember Me, and Pierce Brosnan played his father. So, again, lots of Bond talk there. Nicole Kidman starred in Portrait of a Lady from Jane Campion in 96. Val Kilmer recently had his fantastic documentary released about his life, including footage from this movie. Kilmer also debuted in Top Secret as a spy comedy parody of James Bond. Campion also directed, here's just a relevant timely note, I suppose, happened a month or so ago, right? Campion also directed Holy Smoke, starring Kate Winslet, who just won an Emmy for Mayor of Easttown. Finally, Tom says, Christian Bale, who later plays Batman in Nolan's series, also appeared in Portrait of a Lady. And last, on an episode of Friends, Ross and Chandler argue about whose tuxedo is cooler, one worn by Brosnan or one worn by Kilmer. 
Chandler wants the Kilmer tuxedo, but rejects it when he learns that it wasn't worn in Batman Forever. Kilmer wore it to the At First Sight premiere. Now, what I want to know is, did Tom have that friend's knowledge at his fingertips, or did he have to do some Googling for that? I'm going to say absolutely at his fingertips. I'm giving him the credit or discredit for that, Josh. Either way, the world now knows. Yep. Reach in to the film spotting hat and pick out this week's winner. Our winner is Josh Compton from Windsor, Vermont. Congratulations, Josh. Email feedback at filmspotting.net and we will set you up with your very own film spotting t-shirt. Schmuck. Smuck. Say shh. Shh. Now say muck. Muck. Now say shh and muck together real fast. Smuck. Closer. Well, usually when we're doing Massacre Theater, it's fun, frivolous stuff like Batman Forever, where we can kind of lean into the badness of our performances. Here, when you're doing a scene like this, that's written this well, acted this well, directed this well, yes, I'm kind of trying to roundabout give listeners a hint here, because it's a little bit more of an obscure movie. Definitely didn't do the box office that even Batman Forever did. No. I could give another hint there, too, about how few screens it even saw. And then... We'll move on. It it really is just going to expose how awful we are. And maybe maybe we should just stop doing Massacre Theater, Josh. I don't know. I mean, this might put an end to it because we're we're about to desecrate something really good. Let's I think just so say too. that. No matter okay. no matter how close we come, it's not really fair to this movie. Now, if you still aren't sure what scene we're about to massacre, what movie we're about to do a scene from, and you really shouldn't know at this point. There is a very clear tie-in to one of our main topics on this episode. Correct. Fair to say, Josh? Yes. Oh, yes. Okay. Very direct. You're going to start it off, Josh. I'm going to give you the action. I know you're not ready. No. But here we go. And action. Oh, my God. Why are you so mad at me? Because this is not an opera. What? I said this is not an opera. You think I think this is an opera? Yes. You think I think this is dramatic? I think you're very young. What does that have to do with anything? If anything, I think it means I care more than someone who's older because this kind of thing has never happened to me before. No, it means you care more easily. There's a big difference. Only it's not you that it's happening to. And (laughs) scene. I feel properly reprimanded. Do you? Good. (laughs) Then then we pulled it off. I don't really know what voice I was doing. Meanwhile, you you maybe you maybe took it up a few RPMs from how that actress performs the scene. But I. I know what you were going for. Maybe I was thinking of somebody else. Maybe you were. We'll leave it there. If you know what film we just massacred, email the movie's title along with your name and location to feedback at filmspotting.net. Your deadline is Monday, October 18th. The winner will be selected randomly from all the correct entries and announced in a couple of weeks. And I sincerely apologize to that film. Ada. I am unhappy. Because I... Want you? Because my mind is seized on you and can think of nothing else. This is how I suffer. I am sick with longing. I don't eat. I don't sleep. So, if you have come with no feeling for me, then go. Do you hear that, Adam? If you've come with no feeling for the piano, 
then go. We get back to our Jane Campion overview with that clip from 1993's The Piano, which remains Campion's best known and most celebrated film. It was her third feature after 1989's Sweetie and 1990's An Angel at My Table, both of which we've already discussed as part of our series. The Piano debuted at the 93 Cannes Film Festival, won the Palme d'Or, and it was the first time the award went to a film directed by a woman. Also, to the festival's shame, it didn't happen again until this year. And that was with Julia Ducourneau's Titan, which we just reviewed. The Piano went on to be nominated for eight Oscars, including Best Picture and Director, ended up winning three. Best Actress for Holly Hunter, Supporting Actress for Anna Paquin, she was 11 at the time. And then Campion did win for Best Original Screenplay. Maybe even more surprising than its award success was that this movie, which cost $7 million, a period film from New Zealand about a mute woman and her precocious daughter, went on to earn over $40 million at the U.S. box office and over $140 million internationally. It was a different time, Adam. Yeah, gotta love the 90s. A quick plot synopsis for those who haven't seen The Piano or haven't seen it in a while. Hunter plays Ada, a woman who is sold into marriage to a New Zealand frontiersman, played by Sam Neill. Among the precious cargo she brings with her, her daughter Flora, played by Paquin. I'm not sure precocious is the word I would use first when I think of Flora. Of course, she also does haul with her her piano. When that piano proves too large, too cumbersome to move from the beach to Neil's home, it comes into the possession of Harvey Keitel's George, a retired sailor who has adopted the customs and dress of the local Maori people. George becomes obsessed with Hunter's Ada, and the two soon engage in an affair. So we've been joking, Adam, about your initial response to Mm -hmm. the piano. I think it was about 2013. We were doing our top five films of 93 list. So you caught up with it. Yeah. And uh, two and a half stars on Letterboxd. Pretty sure no heart was with that two and a half star rating. To quote from it, you said, the movie seems to substitute a combination of heavy handed symbolism and mild at best transgressiveness for coherency. Harsh words to my heart. Do you uh-huh. stand by them after a revisit? And really, you know, more than exactly where your stars are, I'm just curious with a little mm-hmm. more time to think about this film and give it a second look, what you came away with. Well, if you'll indulge me for a second, and at the risk of redundancy here, I'm going to read the entire paragraph that I posted on Letterboxd in 2013. It's a short one, and it will set up where I'm going to go, Josh. I never have go-to answers when people ask me about widely adored prestige pictures I consider overrated, so I'm glad I finally caught up with this. Not willing to go so far as Stanley Kaufman and call it an overwrought, hollowly symbolic glob of gluttonous nonsense, but it certainly seems to substitute a combination of heavy-handed symbolism and mild at best transgressiveness for coherency. There's rarely anything more seductive than finally unleashed sexual repression, but Keitel's nude scenes in Bad Lieutenant might just be as hot as the piano lessons here. Still, Still almost got another half star just for Hunter, Paquin, and Neil. You are going to be so relieved to hear, Josh, that I now have to wonder, what am I going to do without a go-to answer to that question? Nice. The only thing maybe I got right, if you really consider everything I just read, is how good Hunter, Paquin, and Neil are. You saw that, or I certainly saw it in 2013. I saw it even more demonstrably this viewing. I'm not sure what symbolism, I'll be honest, struck me as so heavy-handed then, and I have no issues with its coherency. I would love to tell myself, and this would be a first here on the show, I'm pretty sure, I'd love to tell myself, I hear what you're saying, but you're completely wrong, 
I don't know that I'm completely wrong, Josh, and this may set up the conversation here. In terms of its transgressiveness, while I can imagine plenty of scandalized viewers going to the cinema back in 1993 when they thought they were probably going to see something pretty tame, this this prestige picture that was getting all of these good reviews. I mean, I can imagine someone going to this movie and thinking he wants to do what things while she plays the piano. Wait, is that Harvey Keitel rubbing a piano while he's completely naked? And and how about Sam Neill's cuckolded husband character who, when he discovers the affair, doesn't get angry and violently burst in and break up the tryst. No, he he crawls under the floorboards so he can see and hear the tryst better. So those elements are all there, and there are more we could mention. I do think it still feels a little safe to me, safer than what I'd expect from Jane Campion, having now seen and discussed her two prior films and having seen some of the ones that that came after it. So I'm curious what you think about that, especially when what actually seems maybe the most transgressive, and maybe you'll tell me you don't think that's what the movie is trying to accomplish, so it's irrelevant. But maybe what's most transgressive watching the piano now, watching it in 2021, is that this awakening of Ada's, which as viewers, we are, I believe, expected to applaud, is all spurred by coercion by by blackmail you're getting of, there of a man you're getting there yep okay well ease me along josh <laughs> okay um i mean for one thing i don't want to hold transgression as the bar that this movie needs to pass to be successful i think it's it's there in ways i'll describe but it's just one of the the many many elements in this movie, um, certainly it was it was probably shocking in the ways those scenes that you just encapsulated, I think, probably were shocking at the time. I think they're still, you know, not where you expect this story might go. You you would. This is one of the great things about the piano. You would expect Alistair to burst through the cottage doors in rage. What makes this a far more unsettling movie is that he chooses to watch mm-hmm. and more mm-hmm. of a campion movie, I would say. But, yeah, I think you're you're hitting on it, Adam. I think this movie, if watched today, would ruffle just as many feathers, but different feathers. And it is that coercion element. I mean, this is a very dicey film in an age where, thankfully, we are asking questions of consent on our movie screens and in real life. This is a movie that is murky about that. It is so murky about that. And that, to me, makes it very campion. And it's all in those scenes with the two of them, these piano lessons, after the point that they've come to this bargain and he's going to give her a key for each visit. That whole idea struck me as something that is like, I'm just going to say it's undeniably romantic. I mean, like if you were, this movie kind of made me think, how many steps further does being romantic take to become manipulative? You know, because that's a romantic gesture. Here is a gift for your visit. You could see that turned in a different way Mm -hmm. where it could be, you know, a love story, the basis of a love story. But it's very different here. She is being bribed. She is being exploited. There is no doubt around that. 
you get that early moment. I don't think it's in the first lesson, but maybe in the second, where without even telling her this is part of the deal, he comes up behind her and kisses her on the neck. Yeah. And she freezes up. That is not part of the the deal. Even if you would accept that their deal was fair, that wasn't part of the deal. And so mm-hmm. that's an intrusion. That's a violation. Yet there is this electricity in their in their in their meetings too. And that is the dangerousness of of Campion. And here's also what's Campion the way the power begins to shift. And you see it right away when Ada says, okay, I'm not sure exactly what the terms are, but basically I think I will take off my black dress if you give me all the black keys. Right. So all of a sudden there, it becomes, I don't know that it turns romantic at that point, but it becomes this power game that I think you could argue each player has equal chips in. And again, I'm dancing around this because I know how things are looked at today and for the good where we need to be suspicious of men's motivations if they Mm -hmm. have the slightest inkling of power over women. And here, sure, she agrees to the bargain, but he has so much power in this time and place over her, right? So that's always at play at well. But but notice little moves that Ada makes. Like when she, that there's that one point where she's playing and it's lush and soft and he comes up and does something that pushes her and all of a sudden her playing turns hard mm-hmm. and even jaunty. And that's a power play on her part. And I think that, you know, to me, it's kind of not the only thing going on here. I think this is mostly a movie about Ada and, and her particular headspace, independent of what happens with Baines. But I do think this thread of the two of them, it's a blossoming from exploitation to something romantic. Mm-hmm. And how you feel about that is just going to encapsulate how you feel about this movie. When it, for me, when he gets to that point where he says he gives back the piano, calls off the bargain, and just says with this vulnerability, I want you to care for me. At that point, I'm like, okay, this is a love story. It's, mm-hmm. it's like he has gone from violator to lover. And I think that transition is just dangerous, transgressive, and and um, at the end of the day, romantic for me. Yeah. And I think maybe something else you could point to is that at least he is honest. He is he is forthright. Now you can you can discuss again the particulars of it and the fact that it's still a coercion, but think about how many monsters we know about in real life who are guilty of these types of acts. And it always seems that it at least begins very much under the guise of something else. So there's, there's deception. Always, there's always some trick. There is deception to it. He's upfront with her and tells her exactly what he wants from her and what he needs from her. And and there is even some patience with her along the way. I also think you express this very well. This power shift between them to being one of equality, at least within that room, at least within his his home, is undeniable. And then, of course, there's the power that she exudes over Alistair every second there together. And I do want to get to something you said about the performances and the electricity. I think maybe another thing that keeps me from being quite as in love with this film as you are, Josh, is the fact that I joked in 2013 that there was nothing steamy about those piano scenes. Well, I was wrong, but there's still a part of me that feels like, I don't know if it's, I don't know if it's quite Keitel's performance or how abrupt actually some of the scenes seem to be just when they maybe get to be their most interesting or potentially troubling or confrontational, Campion will cut away in those scenes. 
and then I don't feel that the the kind of slow burn of the steaminess and the sultriness is always there. But here's what I definitely felt in those piano scenes this time that I didn't see in 2013. And that is Hunter and her performance when it comes to Ada playing and the complexity of her feelings, not just playing, but performing. You see it throughout the movie, but especially in those scenes with Kaitel, obviously, the layers that she is expressing because of her feelings for the music and the conflict within her in terms of her feelings for him and her sexual desire. That is all really exciting enough. And Hunter's performance, especially in those scenes, I think is so remarkable because I'll show my ignorance here potentially. I don't know what compositions she's playing. There's no point in the movie where I'm familiar with a song that she is playing. And I know sometimes she's playing songs that her daughter is singing, and I'm assuming they were not made up for this movie and are, in fact, odes that have been written and performed for maybe centuries. But the song she's actually playing for him, and even for Alistair, when she has the piano at her house and she's trying to send all sorts of messages, it seems as if she is composing them in the moment. As if she's not just a piano player, but she she is an artist who is writing these on the spot. And whether or not that's the case... That's what it seems like. That's what it feels like watching Hunter just embody these songs, just truly bring them to life. You're touching on a lot of great things there, and we're definitely going to have to spend a little more time on Hunter's performance. But just in terms of those songs, you know, I, I had to do some research myself to to kind of nail this down because this was Sam put something on Twitter about, you know, did you see this movie and immediately buy, buy the soundtrack, the score? And this was one that, you know, I actually did, which would have been rare for me at the time. Um, but this Michael Nyman composition, um, it's really fascinating how it blends from non-diegetic to diegetic. And it's exactly what you're talking about. There are moments where Ada is playing the theme that Nyman has composed. And it turns out, I, I discovered today, that basic theme that anyone who's seen the piano is probably running through their mind right now, it's actually based on a traditional Scottish melody. I'm going to try to pronounce this Gloomy Winter's New Oa. And he takes that and it's supple enough that he uses it so many different ways in this movie, exactly how you're describing Adam. It's not the only thing she plays, mm-hmm. but it's it's definitely there moments in her plane where it melds us with what is the interior of Ada's head that is non-diegetic, the musical score, and then also the diegetic score she's playing there, which is her expressing that physically. And it's just, I'm sure other movies have done that, but it was it was kind of like uh, shocking to to realize how it was being used in this movie. And then that theme also, you know, there are times where it's joyful, there's a variation, there's the melancholy, and that the most tragic moment in the movie, which we'll get to, it comes back there in a slight variation that is is like kind of bitterly ironic. So the the Nyman score I know, you know, is is beloved by so many people and just for its being able to listen to it on its own, but the ways, the sophisticated ways it's used differently throughout this movie um was just just astonishing to me. And yeah, let's let's spend a little more time on Hunter because watching her face and, and a brief digression to say here's how I'll, I'll defend Kaitel's performance 
performance, you're not alone. I know even at the time, it was kind of like the bugaboo for a lot of people as Harvey hmm. Keitel. I'm, I'm not down on it overall in the film. Okay. I will just say in those scenes, I maybe didn't quite feel the heat that okay. I maybe wanted to, Josh. Just, you know, if the, if only they'd had a little hot mustard to share, Adam, you would have exactly. <laughs> yeah. been all in. Yeah. But yeah, I, I know people did have difficulty with, with him. One of the things that I appreciated about him throughout the film and in the piano scenes, too, is how he watches her. And I mention that now because you have to watch this Hunter performance very closely, her face, to get what she's giving you. She's giving you that sort of stoicism on the outside. You know, mm-hmm. that's the first thing we get. But there are shades to it, you know? It's it's sort of the, the hard, direct way she looks at Alistair. You mentioned it, right? She doesn't need words there. She's no. communicating everything. But how about the cryptic smile she gives when he asks, how are the lessons going, you know? Or, or the smug smile she gives when Baines, they're attending this village performance at the, the village theater, and, and he rushes out kind of in a huff, and she has mm-hmm. this smug smile. So there's, there's a lot going yeah. on there in Hunter's performance, but it is that scene, that traumatic incident I'm talking about where Alistair takes the ax, chops off one of her fingers. And if you watch her face there, this is when he does turn to violent vengeance. You know, this is a, a sometime later after the point we were talking about, mm-hmm. she goes through so much without a word that Campion, I don't know if it's full slow motion, but it seems like she definitely downshifts a little oh, yeah. bit yep. because there's so much going on on Hunter's face. There's no way it, it would go too fast if you showed it in regular motion. She has, of course, the horrific physical pain. Then you see the psychological shock. It's like the the bodily reaction, then the mental reaction. Mm-hmm. And then we get something really uncanny. And it is this, it's like a terrible zen that comes across her face. It's this calm. And that's followed by sort of a creeping defiance. But it's that calm that I think is is the most astonishing to me in that sequence, trying to figure out what is she realizing there. I think there might be an answer when we go back to one of your other points about the symbolism in this film. Mm-hmm. So I won't go into that now, but just concentrating on that moment alone is an amazing piece of acting. It's aided by Campion's cutaway to her from behind, far away, when she kind of crumples into the mud and her dress billows up, mm-hmm. and it's just this last exhausting gasp. So Campion is right there knowing how to to, to visually complement the performance, but what Hunter is giving us on her face, yeah, is, is just uh, one of the all-time acting showcases. Yeah, and there is a line in the movie, two lines actually here in this bit from the script where I think it's Aunt Morag and the Nessie character who are always together. And they're very suspicious of of Ada and don't quite like her. And everything we're saying about the music, the power of the expression, how Ada feels it, experiences it in the moment, how Hunter then dramatizes that or expresses all of it. It really comes through in this part where the aunt says, you know, I'm thinking of the piano. She does not play the piano like we do, Nessie. She is a strange creature, and her playing is strange, like a mood that passes into you. I I, I love that thought of of a mood passing into you. Now, your playing is plain and true, and that is what I like. To have a sound creep inside you is not at all pleasant. That that speaks for really every moment that she, she starts playing the piano, where some people are maybe initially delighted a little bit, and then it's almost as if there's something a little bit off-putting 
about it. It's uneasy. No one is just impressed. I think it's because there's such a fundamental difference in the way these people experience the world. And only an artist like Ada can really even process and understand what she is putting out. And to everyone else, it it is just this mood. It's something creepy that just kind of comes upon them. It's such a great description. And, and yet almost one watching it this time, I, I wish Campion had left out, you know, and let us just kind of like come to that realization ourselves as viewers. Yeah. It's still so poetically rendered, It's so though. poetic, right. I know that it's like you, you want it to be in there. I agree. And it, it also ties with the comment Alistair makes at one point where he says that, you know, there's a moment where he thinks he heard her voice in his head. Yes. And she's speaking of herself. She's not really speaking to him necessarily or about mm-hmm. him. She says, I'm afraid. He thinks she says, I'm afraid of my will. Which, again, goes back to my point that this is all about Ada. This is not yeah. necessarily about her relationship You're with right. Alistair or her relationship with Baines. It's all about her kind of turbulent inner state. Yes. And then finding herself in this time and place. And how that then bewitches and upsets, really, everyone she comes in contact yes. with. I mean, in a lot of ways, it's another it is another story by Campion of an artist in the world who is having that that impact. And it's not always a soothing one or a reassuring one. In fact, usually with a great artist, it's not. And how about this for a transition, Josh? There's a great scene in the movie I wanted to mention that I completely forgot from 2013 that also speaks to everything we're saying and to how nothing in this movie is wasted. From character details to other scenes that maybe initially don't seem like they move the story forward, the Scene you mentioned, and you're right, I love that grin because that's the only time we see so many facial reactions from Holly Hunter, so many emotions expressed in this movie because it is almost entirely a silent performance. And yet that look when she kind of bothers him so much that he has to leave, like just her presence seems to upset him in a way that she's she's really intending and she does smirk in that way. There is something devilish about it that, uh-huh. that it really is fun. You're you're absolutely right. But later in that play scene where we know how the trick is being done because it's it's shown earlier, but they're doing a play. I think it's Bluebeard, and it's all being done with shadows or the yeah. key part of it's being done with shadows. And the Maori people watching actually are so upset by it, believe it's real, they attack it because it unleashes something in them emotionally, something so viscerally that they they can't help but react and respond to, just as George does when she plays the piano, as she herself does when she plays the piano, or even when she plays it and people like Nessie and Aunt Morag hear it and immediately want to dismiss it because it makes them uncomfortable. So I love a scene like that. And then I'll go to character details, like the two or three times where we see Sam Neill combing his hair. Mm, yes (laughs) i love it too that i think every time we see him comb his hair he then immediately covers it up so Mm. maybe he never intended for anything but to always wear that hat but just the act almost the psychological act of a little bit of preening and primping like i need to get myself ready It, it just makes him seem like this kind of sniveling little kid who who has to keep his hair straight but then Of course, appropriate to his repressed character, he immediately has to cover it up. He is all about hiding it, right? And so the irony of that character, and I think Neil's performance maybe 
goes under the radar here because of Paquin and the fireworks there and Hunter. But Neil is so good. And the irony of it is, is that he is someone who is completely incapable of showing vulnerability, despite the fact that every moment of his existence, he's vulnerable. <laughs> yes, that's, that is perfect way to capture it. I, I think it's a great performance as well. I, and this is a character who's villainous, but pitiable. You yeah. know, it's so pitiable and, and, and seriously villainous. I mean, you know, he ends up being, as I mentioned, the true violator. How about that scene where he's, he's clawing at Ada in the mud among the tree roots. It has a very like fairy tale wolf, um, feel to it. So he's dangerous there, but he's also pitiable. Yeah. Neil is so good. And your comment about the, um, thinking of Ada as an artist, you know, and how that harkens back particularly to an angel at my table and Janet frame. So many things popped up here. Thinking about these two women together, there's they share a perception of mental illness, right? How about when Alistair makes that comment about yeah. Ada? I wonder if she's not brain affected. Right. She's playing the kitchen table. He can't fathom yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. And and Ada is similarly, you know, it's interesting because you could say we talked about how Janet was, especially in the Carrie Fox sections of that film. You know, she had her own sense of self, but was so crippled by being among people and in society and kind of gave herself into what society expected of her. And Ada is, you know, definitely more she's not as compliant, but she, too, gets carried along mm -hmm. by this time and place's expectations. Literally, think about how she comes to the beach, the men lifting her above their heads. Right. And so they they kind of share that in common though i do think ada has more inner resolve i think about how to how to live within those constraints and yes. then and then also you know what her limits might be and what they might not be i do want to go back to that comment you made though adam about the symbolism because i do think you're onto something there you know you were initially tripped up about mm -hmm. like is the symbolism the first time you watched it it seemed like is it kind of like i don't you didn't say too obvious but um, heavy-handed heavy-handed yeah and that is you know that's fair to say because you could look at this and just say oh the piano is her voice right and it is that obviously yeah. i think that's true but i think what it's interesting what happens with that piano that that i think as soon as we learn that she's mute and she plays the piano it's like oh well that we have that right but once this thing comes out of its crate and we don't see it for a while, it's interesting how we first see it on the beach. It It's brought into our field of vision from behind the camera and above mm -hmm. it. So it's kind of lowered from the men carrying it onto the beach, comes into our field of vision, almost like it's this holy artifact, you know, mm -hmm. and there, there's something, uh, it's like the Ark and Raiders to it in the crate. And it isn't until it comes out of that crate and it suddenly opens up to this sort of, I mean, it, it's like a voracious symbol at that point that really can mean so many things. It's her voice, but it also represents her past. It seems to me an image of depression. I think about one, the moment where one of the Maori people describe it as a coffin. Mm -hmm. And ultimately what it struck me as being this time is that, and I know the ending complicates this, but it symbolizes whatever it is that keeps us alive during our existential struggle to live. Now for Ada, it is yes, a practical piano, but is it is also this thing you feel that if you start to recognize her as a possibly seriously depressed woman, whether that is because of her own mental health or the situation she finds herself in, like this is the thing that is getting her up every day. Mm -hmm. and, and that just kind of, you know, it ties back to, I think that moment after her finger is cut off 
and she finds that Zen. It's a terrible thing to realize, but I did wonder if it's the moment where she says, okay, maybe this simplifies things for me. I no longer have that. I don't know. I no longer have to try to live because it's almost like that's where she kind of makes that move towards where we see in the climax, which I do. I still do read as an attempted suicide. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's fair. And when I said earlier, I'm not sure what bothered me about the symbolism in 2013. It's because of what you just said. You articulated it better than I'm about to. But it simply seems to me that if you're hung up on the piano being this this expression of her voice, well, that's that's the entire film. I mean, it's not as if layered over the top of a story, a certain filmmaker or writer can't help but weigh it down with all of this symbolism. This is what the movie is fundamentally about. And I guess I just was generally more moved by that story this time and not bothered by maybe how obvious it potentially is. And you mentioned that that scene where we watch the men unloading the crate and think about how we see that in comparison to the moment that I think happens just before it. I may not be recalling correctly, but the moment where the men are bringing her out of the sea, Mm -hmm. out of the boat, onto the land, that to me is also an amazing Campion shot. And this movie is filled with little stray images yes. that that no other filmmaker, at least you know through these three films, they feel appropriate. But I can't think of many filmmakers who would give us these type of stray images or these moments that just catch us so off guard. And sometimes they, they're fleeting. They only last a second or two. And that moment when we see in close-up the men's hands all over, you want to talk about symbolism. I mean, the, the that's basically the expression of the attack she feels by these men, not just these men in this moment, but overall sure. in society. And it's it's really scary, despite the fact that all we are witnessing, we don't really know what we're seeing. It isn't until we finally pull back that we realize that they are helping her to land. But for her in the moment, Campion finds a way, the perfect way to express the terror she's feeling, or at least the unease she's feeling, by showing the hands sort of grappling and and grabbing all over her. They're trying to help her. It doesn't feel like that at all in that moment. Yeah. And that speaks to her, you know, her response when she's asked. So Alistair isn't on the beach to meet her. So she has to be left alone with Flora. And the captain, we assume it's the captain of these men, says, well, if no one's here, why don't you come back with us on the ship to the next port or something? And she like violently, yeah. you know, signs to Flora to tell him, like basically yeah. back the hell off. Yeah, and not just no thanks. Yeah. She's like, no but chance in hell. Yeah, but your reading of that image supports yeah. that, right? Like yeah. she's, it may have just been the journey itself, but it could have been surrounded by these men. And, and the imagery, I mean, there it is such gorgeous stuff here and it's so mercurial the the blues the greens the grays just setting the story at the beginning in this bay that is stormy with these roiling waves the cinematographer is Stuart Dryberg and then they continue this feeling into the you know the jungle that's between the bay and Alstair's homestead which just has these like exposed roots from I don't know if they're banyan trees or what but the mud 
everywhere. Just just the mud oozing through those roots, oozing up over these kind of hapless boardwalks that they've put in place that don't really do anything and offer kind of a little commentary on the ludicrousness of colonialism Mm -hmm. at the same time. I think the costumes do a lot of that. Think of all the shots, not only of the unnecessarily obtrusive gowns the women are wearing in this setting, but also those top hats that uh, I love, you know, Alistair looks silly enough in his, but then it's when the Maori people who are working for them, somehow they've gotten a hold of them and they put them on their heads too. Mm-hmm. And you, you get the sense it's a little bit of like a, a tweaking of like, look how ridiculous we look in these. This for is sure. how you look to us, you know? Yeah. And so I, yeah. I like that in the costume design too. So yeah. You're so right about the the imagery in this um, just being incredibly potent, which which we would expect from from what we've seen so far. We should mention too, in terms of a sweetie connection, that you mentioned. I forget the character's name. Nessie. The, yeah, played by uh, Genevieve Lemon, who was the title character in yeah. Sweetie. So she makes a return here, and a fun little character touch with her. There's a couple moments where we watch her and hear her finish the line of Aunt Morag. She she yes, says yeah. she says it because she knows what's going to come out because she says the same thing probably all the time, even when they're alone. So they're just repeating conversations for whoever they happen to be with in the moment. And since she doesn't really have any thoughts of her own to express, she'll just say it as if it's her own in the moment. Again, a little character detail that Campion puts in there. And we're winding down here, but we haven't talked yet about Oscar winner Anna Paquin. And I'm not. I'm not sure what all you could say other than she is a force <laughs> as yes. a very young girl in this movie. And really her character and some of the decisions she makes are the most confounding in the film and the most troubling and the ones you really are thinking about after the movie ends. But maybe the thing I love most about her character and the performance is the same way Ada uses that instrument to express what she's thinking and most importantly feeling. It's similar with Flora in that she's taking the signs, she's taking the physical movements and and verbalizing them. And she doesn't just translate. She is the instrument for (laughs) what her mom is trying to say. She is just as expressive as that piano, whether it's being passionate, whether it's being very angry or any other emotion that Ada is experiencing. You can trust that it will come through via Packlin. Does your mother prefer to come on with us to Nelson? She says no. She says she'd rather be boiled alive by natives than get back on the Austin Cantub. You be damn fortune, daughter. No, I love that. It's She's not just the literal translator. She's the emotional translator. She totally is. As well. And that is, uh, yeah, that's a great way to describe. Up and down, up and down the keys. She uses <laughs> the entire register. She does. And it's almost, you know, even when she's just speaking for herself, you get the sense that she's definitely learned her mother's scowl, which we see a lot, but she hasn't quite identified what social situations to use it in. She's just Mm -hmm. kind of throwing it everywhere. And she's kind of a bratty kid. I love that the movie lets her be that, that we get that a couple of moments where she's tormenting the dog. Yeah. And it's like, you know, I don't like this kid. Um, Mm -hmm. She's telling people off. She tells her mother off in some instances. And I do think, you know, if I'm remembering correctly, this was kind of one of your, your issues too, is like her, 
her motivation for being the one who eventually really exposes mm-hmm. Ada and Baines. They've been discovered, but at this point at the very end, they've they've kind of reconnected with each other um, without Alistair knowing, and Flora exposes that. But I do think it's key that we've seen all of this tempestuousness from her before and to realize for as much as she is the mouthpiece of her mother and loves her mother, I think she also understands, here's a hard thing about Ada, I talked about this film being not necessarily about her and Baines ultimately and their romance. I don't know that it's about her and Flora and her being a mother because this is one of the hard things about her character is there is, she is loving and caring and and obviously does care deeply for this child, but that is in some ways separate from the inner turmoil that she's experiencing. And I think Flora begins to recognize that and perhaps, you know, her motivation for quote unquote, turning her in Mm -hmm. is sensing some instability that she's trying to retain. So yeah. yeah. I mean, think about, think about just the traumas that she experiences that, that we see here over the course of this film. And I do love the, complexity with which that character is portrayed and that she is not simply bratty or mean or someone who is out to get her mother. She is a human being. There you go. She's, she is a human being who behaves tempestuously, who behaves erratically the way a young child who has experienced all that instability might actually behave. And that that is what I really appreciate about the way that character is written and portrayed is that she does some terrible things, but in the moment, they aren't surprising. They aren't surprising in the sense that she also is trying to do what her mother is trying to do or seems to be doing, which is she's trying to carve her own path. She's trying to be, even though she's not ready for it, she's trying to be her own woman. Sure. She's trying to get what she wants from these men sometimes. Even that that act of turning in her mother seems to be more about kind of propping her up as this voice of moral righteousness. Yeah. Getting on Alistair's good side. Yeah. And, yeah. Right. And and so she'll she'll use him or use her mom as she sees fit to meet her needs as a child. And that that too again seems seems appropriate and difficult at times to watch but not untrue or dishonest yeah and we don't usually see that complex of a portrayal of a kid at that right. age it, even i i think you know often in oscar winning roles you know it's yeah. got to be something that's more cute or or a lot of times comic relief or something like that perhaps yep okay so do you feel good i i really like the piano i'm so happy i mean uh, it's it does uh, yeah I know pe- people would love for us to have bickered about this but it's just such a it's just such a wonderful film I want people to enjoy it right. <laughs> I, don't, I don't want anyone left out there you go no confrontations here we are aligned on the piano which is currently streaming on Netflix and available for digital rental next week we will talk about the portrait of a lady from 1996 more about our Campion Oeuvre review including the full lineup and where to watch them is at filmspotting.net/campion And that is our show. If you want to connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, and Letterboxd, Adam is at FilmSpotting. I'm at Larson on Film. In the show archives at FilmSpotting.net, you can find reviews, interviews, and top fives going back to 2005. And you can also vote in the current Film Spotting poll. We're asking, what is Ridley Scott's third best movie? To order show t-shirts or other merch, visit FilmSpotting.net slash shop. And you can subscribe to our weekly newsletter at FilmSpotting.net slash newsletter. 
Out in limited release this weekend, The Rescue, from the directors of Free Solo and Meru. It's a new documentary about the 2018 rescue of a Thai soccer team trapped in a cave for 16 days. David Ehrlich says it further cements the filmmaker's reputation as rock stars of the extreme nonfiction cinema scene. Lamb is also out. A couple discovers, are you ready for this, Josh? A mysterious half-lamb, half-human newborn on their farm in Iceland, as one does in Iceland. You know what we got there, Adam? Yeah. Immersive transcendental animal? Well, I was going to go with manimal or a childimal. <laughs> Is this a childimal? Either, <laughs> Either way, your favorite genre. That stars Numi Rapaz. Also, Mass. Years after a tragic shooting, the parents of both the victim and the perpetrator meet face to face. Jason Isaacs and Martha Plimpton star. In wide release, though, it's no time to die with Daniel Craig and his finale as James Bond. Next week here on the show, we will talk about the next film in our Campion overview. And yes, we will get to Bond. It's no time to die. Might be might be a little bickering on that show. We'll, we'll have to see. Okay. Film Spotting is produced by Golden Joe Dassault and Sam Van Hogren. Without Sam and Golden Joe, this show wouldn't go. Our production assistant is Kat Sullivan. Thanks also to Candace Griffiths and the listeners of the Film Spotting Advisory Board. And special thanks to everyone at WBEZ Chicago. More information is available at WBEZ.org. For Film Spotting, I'm Josh Larson. And I'm Adam Kempinar. Thanks for listening. This conversation can serve no purpose anymore. Goodbye. Film Spotting is listener supported. Join the Film Spotting family at filmspottingfamily.com and get access to ad free episodes, monthly bonus shows, our weekly newsletter, and for the first time, all in one place, the entire Film Spotting archive going back to 2005. That's at filmspottingfamily.com.